1: All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month and 6 months of Paramount Plus Essential plan on us.
0: Mintmobile.com/switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month, unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month, face lower speeds, videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 53124 get 6 months of Paramount Plus Essential plan auto-renews after 6 months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG.
1: Hello everybody, this is Marshall Poe on the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them, so we thought we'd tell you that.
2: So Dr. Yellen, thank you so much for joining us on uh, the podcast today to talk about your book. Um, Before we get into the book itself, uh, I wonder if you could tell us how it is that you came to this project.
1: Well, thank you for having me on this podcast. I'm really excited to be here. Um, How I got interested in this project. So originally, um, I've always been interested in international politics. And... I first went to the University of Washington in Seattle to study international politics, but over time I realized that history was where my real interests lie, um, especially because of the legacy of the past in the present. And so this is what led me to um, looking at World War II and the Greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere more broadly. I was interested in the legacies of empire and war today, and that led me back to the past. An added bonus was that nobody has really written about the Greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere in a compelling way in English, so I thought that um, if I did this I could add to the broader discussion. So. that's what led me to this broader project. Of course, there's one more thing that actually led me to it. Um, I was interested in empire studies, and maybe I shouldn't be talking about this in a, po- a podcast, but I recognized the fact that if I studied the empire, I would be able to travel to various countries and eat all of the great food. So that also drew me, drew me to the project.
2: Well, as, as someone who's currently studying food myself and, and is also a, uh, a, a podcast host for our food food series, uh, I certainly understand that. Um, so did this, if I understand right, this was, uh, the, the book uh, grew out of your dissertation, is that correct?
1: The book, it grew out of my dissertation, yes, that's correct.
2: Okay, great. Um, so I think we'll get we'll get into uh, more of the details uh, as we go through. Um, so I first wanted to just to get our audience oriented, uh, especially because you know it is new books in East Asian studies rather than uh, sort of strictly Japanese history or international politics. Um, there's some real specific uh, context and terminology and so on that uh, I think it's important to to look at first. Um, and so in your, I want to deal with the introduction and to some extent the conclusion together, just to get us oriented. Uh, you refer to the co-prosperity sphere as initially a sort of vague set of ideas and pronouncements that was part of, uh, and I love this phrase by the way, a grand strategy of opportunism. Um, but you argue that it underwent important changes after 1943 um, and you see it as part of what you, what you call two Pacific Wars, uh, one which is a war of empires and the other an anti-colonial war for independence. Um, so. If you could tell us, sort of, in the broadest terms, sort of first, what is the co-prosperity sphere, and then unpack some of that argumentation that you're getting into, um, in particular in the context of the subtitle of the book, which is "When Total Empire Met Total War," um, because that seems to me to be important to your definition of the sphere. Um, so, what do you mean by total war? Uh, what do you mean by total empire? How do they fit into the picture of uh, what is the East Asia co, the Greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere?
1: Okay, Um, thank you for these questions. Uh, There is, that's actually a lot of questions and there's a lot to unpack here. And I'm not sure that I'll be able to get to anything, but I'll do my best. Um, So basically, if you're asking what the co-prosperity sphere was, it, at its basic, at its most um, basic form, it's just a process of envisioning Asia during a time of total war. I do see the Greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere as part of an attempt by Japanese to cast off what they saw as the iniquities of international politics during the age of World War II. And it was um, a sincere attempt to create a new vision for the future, uh, I guess a new future for Asia. I also see it as representing um, what you noted as the two Pacific Wars. In fact, the story of the Asia Pacific War and the story of the Greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere, it's really, um, I guess you could think of it as a story with two major plot threads. It's a story of the height of Japanese imperialism, where Japan tried to um, create a new order in the region. And we'll probably be talking about this a lot more as this podcast unfolds. And the other story is it's also the beginnings of a broader process of decolonization in Asia. More correctly, I guess one plot line that I talk about in the book is a war of empires to create a new vision for Asia's future. And the other plot, co- plot line that I talk about is this concurrent anti-colonial war for independence that is waged in the periphery of Japan's empire. So maybe I can go into this in a bit more detail. Um, the first conflict, again, or the first plot thread is that of the conflict of empires. Um, Japan's co-prosperity sphere was part and parcel of this um, conflict of empires. And in the process, Japan was asserting leadership over Asia under the guise of liberation. They were um, leading Asia, but saying that they were going to liberate it. So what type of Asia did Japan want to construct? And what was the end game? Um, I guess another way of saying this is how did Japan envision its future? This is a much more difficult question to answer because Japanese leaders did not necessarily know what they were doing and the sphere was constantly changing. Um, When the Japanese empire was at its peak in 1942, the co-prosperity sphere um, as a concept It was vague, it was unclear. People were debating it. Um, Key agencies and key policymakers were debating what it actually meant. And what I found really interesting as I I started delving into this project was that nobody could agree on the specifics. It was not until defeat was looking more likely by 1943, as you mentioned, that Japanese leaders said, "Uh uh-oh, and they instead tried to give true meaning to its vision for the future. And this is why I, I do talk about this as, I guess, a strategy or a grand strategy of opportunism because visions that were made to support Japan's Asia-Pacific War, they basically went wherever the wind took them and they depended on the state of the war. And we'll talk about this more, I guess, today. So the second, the second plot thread that I talk about was um this anti-colonial war for independence. Um, My book looks at two independent dependencies of Japan's empire, the Philippines and Burma. And there has actually been a lot of scholarship um, in Japan studies and in Southeast Asian history about the forgotten armies that emerged across Southeast Asia and those armies that fought with the Japanese for liberation through force of arms. And because of that, I, I chose um, a different tack to focus on the co-prosperity sphere. Instead of focusing on the um, on forgotten armies who allied with the Japanese or that were created by the Japanese, I focused instead on institution building that happened in the Philippines and Burma during the war. Um, and I chose this because I think this anti-colonial war for independence was not simply fought on the battlefields. And I argue that the co-prosperity sphere was um, the site of a political war, a political war for national liberation that was waged by nationalist elites across Southeast Asia. And what I'm arguing is that these nationalists tried to make the most of the geopolitical crisis of war to, to prepare for independence that would hopefully arrive after the war ended. And so again, I said, I talked about this through the lens of institutional preparation that happened during the war to um, establish all the trappings of a modern nation state. And some of these institutions had legacies into the post-war era. Yeah, so I think you also asked about the book's structure. Because I talk about this as two stories, I ended up having to narrate these two stories separately. Um, One story was how uh, Japan envisioned the future during a time of total war, and the other was how nationalist elites used the Japanese to bring about independence, or at the very least to enact gains that would be realized after the war had ended. And it was only by combining these two stories. So I guess this is kind of my attempt to write, I guess, a new political history of empire by combining high policy at home with developments on the periphery. And I thought that only by doing this could I really tell the political history of Japan's wartime empire. All right, I'm talking too long. But uh, one more point, one more quick point. Um, Another question was, I struggled at first figuring out which polities I should include. Like the Greater East Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere, it covers theoretically all of Asia, even including perhaps India and even Oceania, Australia as well some people thought that Australia would be part of it. So um, initially I thought the best way forward would be to look at China. And so when I was at Harvard, I studied Japanese, I studied um, Chinese to do so. But as I got into the nitty gritty, I realized that uh, the, the core prosperity sphere was not about China at all. It was really about Southeast Asia. The whole greater part of Greater East Asia implied what the, the Japanese thought of at the time as um, Nampo or Nanyo, like the, the South, and that's contemporary Southeast Asia. So I shifted my eyes to Southeast Asian states and that drew me to the Philippines and Burma. And yes, that's that. So it made sense for me to use this as a transnational comparative history that tied Japan's visions for the future with the realities of Southeast Asia.
2: Yeah, great, thank you. Um, so I want to jump into the chapters, and the, just to to be clear, um, one of the things that you 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 spoke to uh, in, in your response was uh, the way the book is divided into two parts. And there's the the first part, the imagined sphere, um, which deals with uh, what you'd call the the high policy of the the co-prosperity sphere, and the second, uh, the contested sphere, um, which is where you're talking about the responses of Southeast Asian elites, um, and so. Uh, clearly we're going to sort of move through chapter by chapter, so we're starting off with the first part of the book, The Imagined Sphere. Um, And within that, uh, your first chapter is uh, called Into the Tiger's Den. Um, And here you argue that um, and as far as I understand, this is contrary to widely held views that, quote, in one of history's little ironies, Japanese distrust of German motives helped bring the Axis alliance to fruition. So um, given that, at least as far as I know, this is, is somewhat contrary to the, the, the common sense opinion, um, can you tell us what you mean by this um, and what were the effects of Japan's attempts to keep Germany out of its own backyard on the sort of genesis and the initial formation uh, and shape of the co-prosperity sphere? Well, oh, that's a sphere, I guess it's spherical, but...
1: Okay, irony, irony, yes. Um, So many historians, um, they view the Axis Alliance as um, the endpoint of a longer process that started in the 1930s and um, emphasize not only the excitement with which Japan allied with Germany, but they emphasize the relationship with the anti comintern Pact of 1936. So this older scholarship, it highlights the notion that German victories in Europe by June of 1940, it um, energized those who were calling for an Axis Alliance in Japan and it convinced the government to stop dragging its feet in alliance negotiations. This is the traditional view. So basically this argument is that um, Japan was excited by the prospect of working with Germany. And what this does is it makes it look like Japan steps into the warm embrace of the Axis Alliance out of a hopeful politics for the future. And of course, out of a desire to keep the United States from intervening in Asia. One of the things that I realized when I was reading diplomatic correspondence and um, particularly reports that were coming from the Foreign Ministry's Eurasian Affairs Bureau, which was the bureau that dealt with Europe, um, was that, well, there's a certain truth to this. German victories in Europe did energize elites, but it did not do so in the ways that uh, we previously thought. What I found that was very interesting was that now that Germany was, um, had this hegemonic position in Europe, the foreign ministry and even members of the armies became seriously concerned about the future of French and Dutch colonies in Asia. So what did this mean? Um, this meant that um, now Hitler, he had his overlordship confirmed in Europe. So what does this mean for French Indochina? What does this mean for the Netherlands Indies? And this is where the fear happened. There emerged this fear that Germany could actually claim rule over East Asian colonies of the states that it had just conquered. And this would have been a huge issue or a huge problem for the construction of Japan's new order. Now, maybe I should just stop really quickly and say that I'm not arguing that Japan or that Germany would have or could have conquered the Netherlands Indies. They couldn't. To do so, they would have needed Japanese help, particularly the help of the Imperial Japanese Navy, and Japan would never have provided that. But um, this is a diplomatic argument here that even claiming those colonies as parts of, uh, I guess, greater Germany would have severely constrained Japan's freedom of action in Asia. So what does this mean? This means, and this is the irony that I was discussing, was that Japan's alliance with Germany was based in part off of a sense of fear, or you, you could even look at it as incipient rivalry, that um, fears of German intentions toward Asia committed Japan to its full alliance. And this is an alliance that Japan had not been willing to accommodate just a few years earlier. Um, what this means for the greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere is that the very slogan Um, it was not simply used to mobilize Japan behind its new foreign policy. The notion of the co-prosperity sphere was also um, part of a diplomatic offensive aimed at Berlin. So here I'm actually in agreement with some um, of the latest Japanese scholarship that came out very recently, um, particularly that of um, Kawanishi Kosuke. Basically the co-prosperity sphere was a way to show that the Netherlands Indies and French Indochina were in Japan's domain. And they were very successful in this. This was built into the very alliance that Japan signed with Germany and Italy. The alliance was, um, uh, it was uh, akin to, I guess, an older style of alliance, um, one that led, um, the one that was prevalent before World War I, where each party respects each other's sphere of influence. So the diplomatic history behind the tripartite pact for Japan was part of an effort to keep Germany from extending its influence into Asia. This is what I found so striking.
2: Yeah, thank you. That's very clear, um, and I think it's it's a really uh, interesting contribution to the uh, scholarship uh, that really starts the book off uh, in a you know in a in a very powerful way, um, and that continues on into chapter two. Uh, Order begets war. So here you're talking about uh, you begin talking about the the first phase of the life cycle of the co prosperity sphere, um, and you argue that it's defined uh, largely by foreign minister. Uh, Uh, Matsuoka's sphere of influence diplomacy which you've just been talking about um, and this sort of cooperative imperialism uh, as a guiding principle Um, but you also say it's a mix of uh, quote great imagination with great naivete and realism with artlessness at least in its foundations. Um, So tell us a little bit about Matsuoka uh, because I think he's a sort of really important character in the narrative Um, and then also what do you mean by cooperative imperialism um, and what is Matsuoka hoping to accomplish? Um, And if you can also, what's naive about it?
1: Okay. Um, Thank you very much. Um, So, Matsuoka was an interesting guy. Um, He was Japan's foreign minister from July 1940 to July 1941. And owing to his personality, more than anything else, it was his personality that made him responsible for um, making the foreign ministry or taking the foreign ministry back to its position as the primary primary arbiter of um, foreign affairs for that brief period. Uh, he's also an interesting figure because um, he was a man who spent his childhood days in Oregon, in the United States. He spoke near native English with a Scottish accent. So it's, You might as well listen to YouTube of him speaking, it's very interesting. He served as the former president of the South Manchurian Railway. He was also extraordinarily popular. In 1933, um, after the Manchurian incident and the creation of um, Manchukuo, Japan's new client state, he headed Japan's delegation to the League of Nations. And after the League of Nations, it it had censured Japan for its imperialism in Manchuria. Matsuoka, he gave a speech where he um, compared Japan to Christ on the cross and led the Japanese delegation on its dramatic exit from the League of Nations. So he's interesting in his own right. I don't really talk about that in the book, but um, he's really interesting. Anyways, after becoming foreign minister in July of 1940, he had a specific agenda. One of the agendas was um, what we just talked about, the the decision to ally with Germany. But the other main agenda, and what people haven't really been looking about, at least in English language scholarship, is the centrality of the greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere to Matsuoka. Basically Matsuoka wanted to establish a block over which Japan could exercise leadership. Um, So I guess I should talk about blocks. Um, Matsuoka, he believed, like many people in his time, that the world was destined to break up into um, maybe four or five blocks led by strong states. So I guess it would be um, East Asia under Japan, the Soviet Union, the Western Hemisphere under the United States. Um, What would be the other two? The British Empire. Oh yes, Europe under Germany and Italy matsuoka was also a type of person who believed that conflict was not inevitable and there's ways that reasonable people could avoid it Um, for him the key to true and lasting peace was in the acceptance and respect of each other's spheres of influence and this is why i talk about sphere of influence diplomacy so matsuoka's mission was to build japan's sphere of influence and to get everyone else across the world, um, and even within the region, to accept and respect Japan's leadership over that sphere. So this is sphere of influence diplomacy. Basically, he when I talk about sphere of influence diplomacy, I'm really talking about two overall strategies that he was using. First, he pursued peaceful negotiations across Southeast Asia and They were generally economic negotiations, but not necessarily. And the point was to try to gain Asian acceptance of Japan's co-prosperity sphere and of Japanese leadership within the sphere. Secondly, and which this is more importantly, um, he attempted to negotiate with the United States and the Soviet Union to gain on their approval of Japan's sphere of influence because it was in great power politics that the sphere's life would um, be confirmed. Um, Matsuoka, he actually believed that um, the age of Wilsonianism or Wilsonian internationalism had ended. And so he wanted to return to, I guess, an older style of politics. He wanted to return to the imperialist diplomacy of an earlier age, the, the 19th century. So this is what I talk about when I'm talking about cooperative imperialism. He called for cooperative imperialism not unlike the cooperative imperialism that had emerged in Africa and East Asia in the 19th century, wherein great powers um, divided the globe and recognized and respected each other's spheres of influence or interest. So for Matsuoka, oftentimes this meant calling for a tit for tat style of diplomacy where he's basically saying, hey, if you accept our hegemony over place X, it doesn't matter what that place is, we will accept yours over place Y. And uh, Matsuoka was hoping that this strategy would not only secure Japan's position as um, the stabilizing force in Asia, but it would also lead to peace with other regional blocks. And this is um, critical for him um, it's through these these two types of strategies that he was um seeking to construct Japan's co prosperity sphere. You also asked about um um his naivety or his artlessness. Um Matsuoka is another another reason he's an interesting figure is that um he had far ranging uh, visions for the future, but um He did not necessarily. um, He was not able to escape from his own mind. I guess that's the best way of describing this. Um, He would actually tell people that he was either a genius or a madman, and his strategy kind of highlights this. His his vision for the future is global, but it it rested on improbable foreign policy successes. Of course, he, he did come to terms with both Germany, with the Tripartite Pact, and he was able to um, negotiate a neutrality pact with the Soviet Union. But he had no real strategy to deal with the Americans, and the Americans were central. Um, Matsuoka's, um, when I talk about the artlessness, um, it all has to do with Matsuoka's understanding of America. It came from um, his upbringing in Oregon. And he, his America was the America of the Wild West. He thought that um, although the Americans preach passivism, they respond to bluster, swagger, and force. So basically talk tough and the Americans would um, respect them and come to terms with his sphere of influence diplomacy. And this was um, a misinterpretation and this clouded Matsuoka's vision and it was uh, the problems with America that spelled that, that spelled the death knell of his grand design even before it got off the ground. Incidentally, his failure to bring about an improvement with um, relations with Washington was what led to his fall from power in July of 1941.
2: So I think that answers your questions. Yeah, it absolutely does, thank you. Um, I, I, maybe it's not a, a fair follow-up, but I had a, I wasn't sure in the book, and and I'm I'm maybe even less sure now, uh, whether Matsuoka is, uh, in your mind, a sympathetic character or not. I mean, he he really is uh, very often the villain of a lot of stories about Japan's involvement uh, in the tripartite pact uh, and in World War II and the Pacific War. Um, But I'm not, that doesn't seem to be, you know, I have a feeling your view is more nuanced than that, uh, and I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that. So, um,
1: whether he is the villain or the hero of the story? Um, so, sympathetic? Um, no. Interesting and fascinating, yes. So, in one sense, he is the hero of the story. Um, in in one sense. So, my, my whole book is about um, visions for order for the future during a time of total war and the lack of them. Here we have in the period between really September of 1940 and July 1941, somebody who actually does have a vision for the future. And you know, it might not be the future that people want or even like, but he had the, the bluster in order to convince the policy elite within Japan to follow his lead and to let him do what he wanted until around well, well really around May of 1941 he was very successful and in that sense I I find him yes he is the hero of the story at least for for you know a period of a few months does that answer your question?
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, and I was thinking, uh, you know, you, you uh, referenced his, uh, his self-description as either a genius or a madman, um, and it seems to me that you know, in that sense, he's either way, he's a visionary. Uh, in that he's either you know has a grand vision of the future, or he's just seeing visions. Um, and <laughs> you know, I agree with you very much that he's uh, fascinating. I, I I also agree that I'm not sure he's entirely a sympathetic character either. And, and of course, there's the great irony that you know, growing up in the states. The one power that he did not understand and was not able to negotiate, of course was the u s um, so he 's just I, I, I very much agree with you that he 's one of the most perplexing figures in the whole in the whole story um, but i want to i want to get on to the sort of uh, post matsuoka uh, uh, evolution of the co-prosperity sphere, a lot of which you deal with in Chapter 3. And you write that during, of course, the first years of the sphere, um, the government is essentially groping in the dark and it's only after the war uh, began and, as you said in the sort of introductory part of the podcast, that only uh, after it really starts to go poorly um, that serious efforts uh, to envision Asia's future uh, uh, you know, begin to take shape uh, in sort of specifics. Um, can you tell us about this sort of latter uh, half, the the latter days of, of the uh, co-prosperity sphere?
1: Um, okay. Um, so, if we're just talking about chapter three, we'll be talking about really 1942 after the war had begun, and um, it's during this period that. Um, it's really difficult to talk about the co-prosperity sphere as a single vision. Um, It's easier to talk about it as um, a series of ideas or plans or even debates that were not really coordinated in any way or at least coordinated at first. Um, This is why, and I think I mentioned this earlier, one of my central arguments is that um, the co-prosperity sphere is best seen as a process a process of envisioning Asia, and you could see it at work after um, the outbreak of war against the Americans and the British in in December of 1941. So maybe I should have said this at first, um, but uh, one of the striking things that I came across was um, how the best and the brightest of Japan thinkers did not really know what they were talking about when they talked about the co-prosperity sphere. This, um, in 1941, even Rōyama Masanichi, who was, um, I'm sure your listeners are well aware that he was the former Shōwa Kenkyukai architect of Japan's East Asian community. Um, he thought that the co-prosperity sphere was utter nonsense. What's even more striking to me was that in February, I think it was February 27th, 1942, I can't remember the exact date, late February 1942, um, Prime Minister Tojo himself, like the person who's responsible for creating the co-prosperity sphere, was unclear as to what it meant. Um, He was attending a liaison conference between government and high command, and he asked the liaison conference members, what's the difference between a co-prosperity sphere and a national disp- defense sphere. Of course, that's that might be a logical question, but the reply was even more striking to me. Nobody knew what to knew, nobody knew how to answer it. They replied, "Hmm, we need to do more research and get back to you on this." So this means that the men who were directing Japan's war for Asia did not understand the type of future that they were trying to build, even after the war against America and Britain had begun. This wowed me. This wowed me. Um, So I realized at that moment or I realized later that it was the outbreak of the Pacific War in December of 1941 that led people aside from Matsuoka to envision Asia's future but um, in the first years of the war it was more discussion or debate than anything else and this debate happened both outside of government and inside government Um, outside of government there were a number of organizations that produced visions for the future um, largely in 1942 my book focuses on three of them Um, one is the naval intelligence division One is the Total War Research Institute and the other is the National Policy Research Association. And what's interesting is um, that each of these organizations, they saw the sphere as kind of a hybrid or a mixture of imperial arrangements. They all understood it to be a political hierarchy of nations. Um, They generally divided it into Japan and then under Japan would be the independent states and under the independent states would be protectorates and then finally colonies. And the idea behind this is that um, Japan would pursue formal colonialism when necessary and informal anti-colonial tro- control when desirable. Uh, so this kind of flies in the face of this um, vision of the co-prosperity sphere as anti-imperial imperialism or anti-colonial imperialism. Um, most visions also pointed to the sphere as um, a system of exploitative development in that um, Japan would plan economically for the region to extract capital to and resources to and in the process they would guarantee Asian security, but would also develop and uplift the region. so that's outside of government. Um, inside of government, the idea of the co-prosperity sphere ended up being um, a little bit a um, little more than a turf battle between ministries or individuals for control over economic and foreign policy. I talk about two major initiatives in this regard. One is the um, Greater East Asia Construction Council and the other is uh, the creation of the Greater East Asia Ministry. Now the Construction Council, it was supposed to create a new 15 year plan for the future, for the regional economy. But um, it was hampered by fights between the cabinet planning board on the one hand, and the Ministry of Commerce and Industry over policy. And in the process, it ended up um, producing little more than reference material for future discussions. In fact, the only thing the, gov- the, the Tojo government was able to do, um, aside from conquering much of Asia, um, was to establish the new Greater East Asia Ministry, and this was done against the resistance from the foreign ministry, and it led to the, uh, the downfall of the foreign minister. This ministry, this new Greater East Asia Ministry, it was part of a sincere attempt to centralize and rationalize policy for the entire sphere, but it only ended up becoming an agent of cultural diplomacy, and it never really did much and never gained relevance in Japan's political life or the political life of Asia as a whole. So I guess what I'm saying here is that um, in this sense, Japanese visions and efforts at institution building in 1942, or at least planning for the future, this, they all constituted little more than works in progress.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
2: So um, in the second uh, part of the book, uh, part two, The Contested Sphere, uh, you begin to explore the patriotic collaborators uh, in the Philippines and in Burma. Um, and this seems to me to be uh, a really big part of the intervention you're trying to make into our thinking about uh, so-called collaboration, I think in, in scare quotes in, uh, in this context, um, as well as about the ultimate meaning, value, and effects of the sphere, um, and, to, and to, you know perhaps uh, other similar uh, Imperial and colonial projects. Um, In the Patriotic Collaborators, which is chapter four, uh, you argue that Philippine and Burmese nationalist elites evinced a strong similarity of purpose uh, which you tie to the longer histories of both colonies. So could you tell us about that shared purpose uh, and about the historical context that you see behind it?
1: Okay, um, all right, so by discussing, um, the Filipino and Burmese nationalist elites as patriotic collaborators, I am trying to make an intervention into, you're right, into these understandings of collaboration. Um, and you're right to put square, scare quotes over them because, um, collaboration, it's a weird, it's, it's weird that this has happened because it's a simple term that it means to work together which for some reason, when we talk about it in, in uh, terms of politics, it has come to imply high treason. So collaborators are generally understood as people who work with a foreign power to, for personal gain or to enrich themselves at the expense of their broader nation. So in this process, um, collaborators who, who are working for political freedom, for independence, or even to remake their societies, they, uh, they get dismissed as mere traitors. And this is a big problem. Um, it's a problem even when you're considering places like China, but it grows um, exponentially when you're considering Southeast Asia, especially because this was a time of empire in Southeast Asia. So the question is, what does it mean to be loyal in places like the Philippines? All right, the Philippines had a Commonwealth government and it was on the road to independence. Its independence was scheduled for 1946, but they were still beholden to the United States. So in the Filipino context, loyalty still implied loyalty to the American empire or to the United States. What does it mean to be loyal in colonial Burma? Again, it's loyalty to the British Empire. So what we find when we look at Southeast Asia is we find political elites in colonial capitals finding themselves caught between two empires, between the invading Japanese and the former colonial masters. And so the similarity of purpose that they both showed was they both tried to make the best of their situation while keeping their focus on their future goals of national independence. Um, the Japanese, when they invaded Burma, they found no shortage of willing collaborators, not only to help with the invasion, but also to serve as um, new governmental elites. So in Burma it was um, collaboration was possible and uh, because um, initially middle class ethnic Burmas or Burmans, I'm sorry, in lower Burma um, they saw the war as a chance to secure full independence from the British Empire. And they recognized that British authorities time and time again said that they were not ready to give this full independence, or it didn't have to be full independence, it had to be some type of constitutional advance, whether it making them a part of the, a, a dominion in the British Empire, or whether they get full independence, it mattered not. Even after drafting the Atlantic Charter in August 1941, which um, if you recall the Atlantic Charter provided for, although it didn't use the phrase national self-determination, it basically provided for that. Um, the prime minister at the time, Usaw, he went to London to talk to Winston Churchill and Leo Amory. And he basically said to both of them, so what are you going to give us some type of constitutional advance? either independence or dominion status. And Churchill and Amory both said, well, not now, maybe later. Um, so with this lack of commitment, it's no small wonder that uh, younger hardliner nationalists that were still in Burma at the time, as well as um, former prime ministers like Bama and even Usa, they were willing to collaborate with the Japanese to receive the independence that the British Empire was unwilling to give. And so in the process, um, they're seeking um, an independent Burma, even if this means switching one colonial ruler for another. All right, so that's Burma. Japan had an even greater victory with the Filipino elite um, because the Philippine elite went over as a group to the Japanese side minus the president and the vice president at the time who, uh, President Manuel Quezon and Sergio Osmeña, who escaped to Washington. But even the Filipino leaders who collaborated always spoke of themselves as a caretaker regime. And they saw their role as um, enduring as long as Japan remained strong. So for them, government leadership, um, collaborating was a necessity. It wasn't a choice. And, you know, Japan really sweetened the pot after, 1940, after January of 1942 because they began making repeated offers of independence, conditional on active participation in the greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere. So it remained uncertain at the time whether such independence would be genuine, but for Filipino elites, it made sense to work with Japan in the short run. If Even if the Americans returned, they could always have claimed to have been enduring until the Americans returned. And so this is why I call it patriotic collaboration. Um, the Jose Laurel, who was the former minister of justice who would later become the president of the Republic of the Philippines, he even told a non-collaborator, he said, and I'm quoting him here, he said, um, the real cake is coming. In the meantime, there's no harm in being satisfied with the cookies. When the Americans come back, I'll hand over the government to them. So I guess the story I'm telling here is that we have uh, nationalist elites in Burma and the Philippines struggling to ensure that wartime occupation could have positive legacies in the post-war era, no matter how the war turns out. If the, Japan, if the Japanese side wins out, then you know, they can get independence. If the Americans come back, they have their independence set anyways. Well, at least the Filipinos do. And this is why I see them as patriotic collaborators and why many wartime collaborators across Southeast Asia are now considered national
2: heroes. Yeah, thank you. Uh, That's very clear, uh, the intervention that you're making uh, and using uh, the response of uh, elites in in the Philippines and in Burma. you know, and you you mentioned in your answer this uh, this sort of question of being between two empires. And of course, you know, that's also the title of H. Azuma's book uh, on a very different sort of uh, problem of being caught between two empires. But it really, you know, I think that the way that you're using that sort of concept is is a very powerful way of thinking about um, so much of what's going on in the early to mid 20th century, where you know peoples across the world are in some way or another uh, sandwiched between various sort of imperial projects and without knowing how they're going to turn out, which of course is, you know, the state that we all live in, uh, this idea of patriotic collaboration, I think you've explained why it would be a very pragmatic decision that makes sense. Um, and so you you go on in, uh, then, in Chapter 5, a new deal for Greater East Asia um, to deal One of the one of the central themes of the chapter, I guess, is the Greater East Asia uh, Conference of 1943. Um, And can you tell us about this event, um, about its significance, uh, and about sort of particularly what its significance for uh, these elites uh, that you're writing about in this half of the book?
1: Okay. Um, So this is the chapter where everyone comes together where all the actors that I talk about, they go to um, Tokyo to participate in the Greater East Asia Conference. Now the Greater East Asia Conference, it was held on November 5th and 6th, 1943 in the Imperial Diet Building in Tokyo. Um, there were 46 participants from seven Asian nations. The attending nations were um, Japan, they were basically the independent nations of Japan's co-prosperity sphere. So Japan, China, Manchukuo, um, Thailand, Burma, and the Philippines. And then India was there, or the provisional government of Free India under Subhas Chandra Bose. It was there as an observer. Now the point of the conference was to discuss the war and the construction of the Greater East Asia Co-prosperity Sphere. And the delegates they had discussions about new asian values of independence equality prosperity and cooperation and these values were enshrined in a widely publicized joint declaration it's called the greater east asia uh, the greater east asia joint declaration i call it um, for practical for all practical purposes the pacific charter and that's because it was meant in opposition to the atlantic charter basically um, the conference was articulating a new vision for the future of Asia, and this was enshrined in the charter itself. And this new vision for Asia was really um, governed by this turn to liberal internationalism. So in the lead up to the conference, the foreign ministry, they, they somewhat naturally drifted towards liberal internationalism as a type of ideology that would govern the future of Asia in the lead up to the conference um japan they offer independence to burma and the philippines this is and burma and the philippines were made independent in august and october of 1943. Um, japan also founded the provisional government of free india in um, october of uh, 1943 in singapore and they also did a number of other things like forging more equal relations with thailand and getting rid of the last vestiges of the unequal treaties that were imposed on the Chinese Nanjing regime. And by holding this conference, Japan was also suggesting that these independent states in Asia would um, have um, important roles to play in the post-war international order in Asia finally, um, the foreign ministry, the Japanese foreign ministry, they drafted a highly idealistic joint declaration which was actually modeled after the Atlantic Charter and incorporated many of the key elements of liberal internationalism, which is like um, independence and autonomy, that sounds kind of like national self-determination, economic cooperation and open access to resources sounds kind of like free trade to me, and um, cooperative relations and they even called for an abolition of racial discrimination. And so this is where this turn to liberal internationalism is um, critical for understanding what's going on. Um, many of the fundamental aspects of liberal internationalism were used in the joint declaration and were instituted into the, the workings of Japan's new order. And um, So maybe I should stop here really quickly and say, I'm not arguing that Japanese leaders suddenly became hardcore liberal internationalists. Some people like like, um, Jessie Abel, she argues that um, internationalism never died and there is something to be said for that. But what I found when I was doing my research was that um, the motives behind this new internationalism, even if it had never died, it was still employed for pragmatic reasons it was not meant to apply to areas of the empire that Japan was still unwilling to relinquish. So Korea was still going to be in the empire as was Taiwan, Indonesia, Malaysia. And so in this sense, this new liberal internationalist ideology was instead used as, I mean, I guess they were taking tools out of the toolkit of Wilsonianism to ensure the, the survival of the Japanese empire and the co-prosperity sphere. So I argue here that internationalism is serving both imperial and Pan-Asian ends. Um, so as things got worse from Japan, uh, worse for Japan, uh, what's really interesting is that Japanese elites, they begin to double down on this liberal internationalism. In April, they, after the end of the first Greater East Asia Conference, they, um, I think the Burmese delegate Ma suggested that they should hold them every year. And there was a general agreement that another Great East, greater East Asia conference should be held. But the Japanese waited until April of 1945 to do so. And this was after the major fire bombings of Japanese cities had begun. So it's not like the region could travel once again to Japan to participate in this grand conference. So the second conference was attended by ambassadors alone. And this time they adopted a joint statement that was even bigger in scope that called for, it was actually more Wilsonian Wilsonian than Wilsonian could have ever hoped to be. The 1945 joint statement called for things like total disarmament, independence for Indochina and Indonesia, the liberation of all peoples from colonial status and the creation of regional and global collective security Organization. So basically with this, all of a sudden, Japan was repackaging its war as a humanitarian war um, to ensure the breakup of all empires. So all of a sudden this war that Japan is fighting is done in, for the purpose of ending empire itself and ensuring um, people can live liberated from, from empires in a peaceful, progressive international order. So what's interesting is that the closer Japan Came to defeat, the more it started and the more it doubled down on liberal internationalism. So, um, this transition, I I kind of point to this in the conclusion um, that it had longer term consequences and that you could argue that Japan's postwar foreign policy had its roots in developments in 1943, although um, others argue that it's, it really had its roots in the 1920s. Oh, I should probably uh, mention one thing. Um, the the very um, articulation of this new liberal internationalism was something that colonial elites in the Philippines and Burma also were really excited about because they recognize now that they also had something that they could use to protest against the infringements that Japan is doing on their own polities or their own societies. So frequently, after the joint declaration was um, was articulated and accepted, um, the Batmal regime and the Jose Laurel, Laurel regime in the Philippines frequently told the Japanese, "Look, why are you constantly infringing on our industry? We have." not only our pact of alliance, but we have this joint declaration that you drafted. So this is another reason why it was important that even if Japan had ended the war and kept its empire intact, um, the very act of having this new liberal internationalist ideology would have constrained their freedom of action in the post-war era
2: yeah and you uh you wrote somewhere uh that that uh even sham independence brought opportunity and you mentioned that Obama uh, uh, said if the japanese use us let us use them in turn which i think is you know really uh il- illustrating this Uh, sort of pragmatic uh, patriotic collaboration that that you're arguing for uh, in the second half of the book. Um, and Then to close out the book, uh, in chapter 6 and in the conclusion um, you're considering the post-1945, the post-war legacy of the co-prosperity sphere and I wonder sort of in conclusion for the podcast if you could uh, tell us where you ultimately come down on the significance and legacy of the co-prosperity sphere to the post-war world, uh, in particular in Southeast Asia uh, and in, I guess what was greater East Asia.
1: Okay, Um, yes, thank you for that. Um, So I do think sham independence brought opportunity for both the Philippines and Burma. I do argue in my book that the Philippines were more ambivalent than uh, their Burmese counterparts, but both sides they used the war, and they used their independence to build um, to build new institutions to engage in the process of state building and to gain experience in new governmental institutions. so both created new ministries of foreign affairs. both sides created new central banks um, they also staffed offices uh, not only in Manila and Rangoon but diplomatic embassies in Japan as well um Burma offers an even clearer example of uh, how they tried to use this independence for real gains. Um, They established a national army, the Burma Independence Army, which later transformed into the Burma National Army. And they established um, defense establishments along Japanese lines. Um, And so both sides were trying to institutionalize their independence in any way that they could. So in this way, I think I, my, one of my arguments for this chapter is that the co-prosperity sphere provided limited space that leaders in the periphery could use to their advantage. And I want to stress limited space because the Japanese were always infringing on both sides throughout the war. And um, these nationalist elites, they did so through the creation of institutions that they had lacked during um, their the era of colonial rule. And some of them even had an influence on the post-war states. So this, uh, you asked me about legacies, where I stand on the legacies. I guess this is one of the legacies of the co-prosperity sphere. And that some of these institutions, or at least the experience gained in them, ended up um, having an influence on the post-war era. Um, I guess one place that you could see this is the Department of State of uh, of the Philippines post-independence, I'm sorry, after the American return and the end of the war, um, they were staffed largely by people who had partake, who had taken part in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs during the war. Um, another clear legacy in the Burma case is um, in the Military Preparations Bureau, which was a Japanese institution in the army that in the 1950s was used to reorganize the Burma, the Burma Armed Forces. Um, you asked about so you asked about legacies of the sphere. Is that correct? All of them, or just why? Okay. So other legacies of the sphere. Uh, I, I don't know. Um, I generally tie them together with the legacies of World War II because um, they are so intricately inter- interconnected. So one of the legacies is that initiated the beginnings of, of the end, the beginnings of the end of empire in Asia. After the war, it was clear that. Um, Great Britain could no longer hold on to its vast holdings. And even if it wanted to, it would have had to contend with activist nationalist movements in places like Burma, who had uh, now a few years of experience of of, of governing themselves. Well, they had self-rule since 1937, but they had a much more expanded experience after the Japanese had come in and they were more confident. So after the war, the former empires would have a difficult time returning to, I guess, the glory days of empire of long past. Um, This has been used by right-wing nationalists in Japan to claim that the war was done to liberate Asia, but this is a dubious claim, but one that's widely made. In fact, um, I guess if you guys go into a local um, bookstore in Nagoya or or wherever you are, you'll probably, if you walk into the history section and look at books on World War II, you'll probably see lots of books that that question the truth of the Greater East Asia War, whether it was done for liberation or not. And this is coming directly from these ideas. Um, Another legacy of the sphere and of the war was that the 1943 version of the sphere um, that emerged at the Greater East Asia Conference, which I just talked about. It became the foundation of Japan's peaceful post-war foreign policy. So the foreign minister during the time of the Greater East Asia Conference, a man named Shige Mamoru, um, he was the foreign minister again in 1955 and 1956. And he used the language that he created for the Greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere to oversee Japan's normalizations of relations with the Philippines in 1956, and in his speech when he oversaw Japan's admission to the United Nations in 1956. So the Greater East Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere had a second life, or rather, it never really died. It never died, it had its ghosts that lived on into the era of the post-war. Another legacy um, of the sphere, and I guess World War II more broadly, was that of the lionization of many of the patriotic collaborators who I talk about. Um, Jose Laurel in the Philippines, who I talk a lot about, he has a more complex legacy in the Philippines. But um, many of those who took part in the Japan-sponsored wartime governments are now considered national heroes. Uh, And I don't talk about this in my book, but a final legacy of the co-prosperity sphere is in terminology, um, and there's two types, I, I'm just saying this because I'm interested in, um, there was no term for Southeast Asia before the war, and it, only after the war was the term for Southeast Asia invented because it was the British Southeast Asia command which had responsibility to oversee operations in that general era, area. But uh, even more critical for my project on the co-prosperity sphere, I should have talked about this in my book, but it was happening at the same time that I was submitting the last draft for um, to Cornell University Press. Um, but there are many similarities between the Japanese rhetoric for the sphere and the current rhetoric coming out of China for the Belt and Road Initiative. For, for instance, um, the phrase which is, I, I guess, loosely translated as um, community of destiny or community of fate, it's now being used to describe the very type of order that Xi Jinping sees um, for the future led by China. And this is fascinating, and it shows how, in many ways, uh, the lexicon of the sphere, it still lives on in the present. So thank you.
2: Yeah, that, uh, thank you for, for ending on that because I was actually thinking about uh, when Xi Jinping talked about Asia for the Asians, it just absolutely blew my mind uh, and so it's nice to know that we're somewhat on the uh, the same wavelength when, when it comes to this sort of legacy in terms of lexic- this lexicographical uh, and conceptual legacy that the sphere has left behind. Um, so I know that uh, you are very much in demand right now uh, and I appreciate you taking the time out to talk with us. Um, if you'd like to uh, end up with uh, a word or two about what you're up to these days uh that would be great um
1: okay so um I'm doing a few projects but uh the the one that I'm most excited about is um I'm actually writing a biography of tojo Hideki and not, um not Matsuoka <laughs> not, Matsuoka. not oh,
0: Matsuoka. great. okay
1: um so so, Tojo Hideki. The reason I want to write about him is um, because using him will allow me to highlight um, the complex political history of Japan from the 1840s, really, to the present, to the present. Because um, Tojo Hideki has had this interesting afterlife, and that allows me to use him as, um, I guess, a window into not only. Um, the ways in which Japan has dealt with defeat and post-war pacifism, but also um, the relations between China, Korea, and Japan in the present. But I don't know, Like this is a a long-term project, and it's not one that I'm going to be done with anytime soon.
2: Well, when you are, I hope you will uh, come back and join us on the podcast again. Uh, And thank you you so much for taking the time today. Thank you very much. Okay, so uh, we're going to let you off the hook if you have to go. Um, if you do have time and there's absolutely no pressure, uh, we'll, we'll take some questions from the audience, but I also know, uh, as I said, you are in great demand. It's okay.
1: Um, I, think I, took too much time. I think I took too much time for your podcast. I apologize if I talk too much. Um, so, uh, so, yes, I have time.
2: Are there questions from the, the folks in the back there? Uh, Mariana has the mic. Oh,
1: and by the way, there, there are no stupid questions. So if you have any questions, it could be, what did you eat for breakfast today? I'll tell you that, too. <laughs> oh, I didn't eat breakfast, by the way, so
2: that answer's that. <laughs> that was easy. <laughs> yeah, he probably can't hear without the mic is the way the is set up. No, yeah, there you go.
3: So this, uh, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Okay, so this really isn't a, um, a question per se, more of a comment, but um, I know you talked about going long, but I really, really liked your explanations. They really helped clear up um some lingering questions that I had um after reading the book itself, um, just because I kind of struggled to understand um how the co-prosperity sphere um itself worked and how it was as a concept. So with you going into all of the great detail that you did, it really helped me understand the kind of process of how it developed over time and its lingering legacy. So I think that that was really, really great and thank you for going into so much detail to really help clarify that for me.
1: Well, um, if I could respond to your comment, um, thank you for that. Um, The fact that you struggled to understand means that I have failed. I have failed as a writer and this also means that I must do better for my next project.
2: I'm so sorry. It, it, it means that you published with an academic press. Don't worry about it.
1: <laughs> it could mean that. We're as supposed well.
2: to make them struggle to understand.
1: <laughs> it's our job. But, but um, you know, my my audience, um, my imagined audience, is a general person who is interested in World War II, someone who has a university education. So, um, so yes, yeah, so I, so I view this as a personal failure. I'm so sorry. I'm just, I'm playing with you, I'm playing with you. Don't worry
2: about that. Would anybody else like to point out any of Jeremy's personal failures? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Uh, go ahead.
3: Uh, Thank you so much for, you know, your at-length answers in the podcast. Um, As a, I don't know, in this room, I am a 30-year undergrad student. I don't feel like necessarily your book is too hard to understand, but I mean, like, the audience in mind is, of course, like a general person, but you know, education varies. And as a film studies people, I don't feel like, I mean, like these um, complicated issues kind of open for me as a you know a learner to Google Scholar more <laughs> and you know do more of a basics because like of course like I think um, any author, academic author, in their uh, journey to write a book. We kind of, you know, breeze through the kind of basic concepts, and not everyone, you know, is able to understand those basic concepts without, you know, beforehand research and learning. So,
2: yeah, Jeremy, just to uh, to, to, to clarify something. Uh, so, Fong is is uh, our only undergraduate. Uh, she's auditing the class. Uh, so, just to just to make that clear.
3: So, yeah, yes, I yeah. think that's all my comments. Okay, great. Yeah. Any
2: any other questions or comments? or Yeah, Mariana.
3: Yeah, this is a curiosity uh, that is about your investigation process. Uh, I want to know uh, from your dissertation to this book if you add or change like, uh, many things, how was that mainly?
1: Oh, okay, that's actually a very, very, very good question. Um, my dissertation, is public? It's probably publicly available, and I wish that it wasn't.
3: <laughs> it's shit. Uh,
1: so excuse me. Excuse me for that. But um, so There's certain used to chapters. My <laughs>
2: mouth. Don't worry about it.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah, my kids in the next. I, room. I, told, I told my undergraduate
2: class they were fucked up today, so don't worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> well, they probably are. Um, so by definition, yeah
1: yeah so there are certain chapters which are really well done so the the one that I had um chapter one of my book was really well fleshed out in the dissertation um and the ones on the Philippines in Burma were also um really fleshed out and the reason they were really fleshed out is because when I was doing my research um there was uh, so I did much. Uh, most of my best ideas on um, um, Southeast Asia, they were formed at the British Library. And the reason that they were formed at the British Library was because at that point in time, the British Library did not allow anyone to take pictures. And um, if you wanted to copy a page, it would cost around 80 pence per page and they would not press the book down. So they would only do one page at a time. So we're talking thousands of dollars that you would spend on, on copies. So I, I, I had to just sit there at the library and read. And uh, so, the, the, so the, the benefit of this was that when I was, well, was ready to write those chapters, I had a very clear idea of what I was doing. I didn't have as clear an idea of what I was doing with all the other chapters. So the revision process, it actually took quite a bit of time because of that. And there's also, um, I don't know if, if you're planning on going into academe, and if you are, you should probably um, think against it, but, uh, but um, most universities these days, they try to pump out graduates really quickly, which means that dissertations are written with a great deal of haste. And that happened with mine. Um, it was only since I came to Hong Kong that I've really started to grapple. So chapter two, I had to totally rewrite. Chapter three, I had to totally rewrite. My introduction, my conclusion were horrible. And now I think they're a lot better. So I think I had about half was good and half was really bad.
2: So, um, by the way, I mean Jeremy said that it took him forever to uh, do the revisions, but he's, uh, he and I got PhDs the same year and our books didn't come out that far, uh, that much of a difference from each other. Um, but I definitely recognize that feeling of having some chapters that work and some that don't. Um, if I could but maybe plug something for Jeremy, that, that first chapter which he mentions is also out in article form. I forget, where did you publish that?
1: Uh, the Journal of Contemporary History.
2: Right, yeah, um, which is uh, a a very prestigious uh, journal. One that I got rejected from. Not that I'm bitter. Um, hey, I get rejected from. The Jeremy, Jeremy, I didn't tell you this. I got rejected for citing Dickinson. Basically, they were like, "Oh, he's not canon. We don't believe what you know, we don't like Dickinson."
1: Um, wait, 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 wait. Uh, the contemporary? Yeah. So I've never gotten. Um, I've got. I've never gotten into the Journal of Japanese Studies. They always reject me.
2: Really. Oh, we should definitely compare notes. I, I yeah, like you know, I mean, I, I, yeah, because I have two articles in JJS, and I can't. Okay, we, yeah, all right, good. We'll, we'll do this again sometime. Uh, <laughs> if any? Um, so we have, I think, maybe uh, just just a couple minutes. I don't want to keep you too long, and we and we also have to move sort of back across campus for next class for those of us who are doing that. Um, but any, maybe one or two last uh, questions or comments, if there are any. If not, that's also okay. So first, first, Wendy, yeah. Maybe. Okay. We'll see
3: your time. So hello and thank you very much for your talk. I'm from I'm in Taiwanese and my previous background is in policy and international policy in general. So actually your topic is quite familiar for me and but I still learn a lot from your talk and actually I don't have a time to read your book carefully, but I really have some new knowledge about the film Fotonales uh, and the Burma perma part, so I think it's very insightful for me so thank you very much
2: yeah well, thank, you. thank you yeah it's uh, as as i think you know it's uh it's job hunting season right now, so at, le- at least wendy's honest about it right <laughs> 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 yeah quick quickly though
3: can I have a funny question because like your project uh considers you know like the co Co-prosperity sphere, and you talk about like how you enjoy food in various places. Yes. Have you ever thought about the poss- possibility of you know expanded this kind of sphere on a more you know cultural, daily, local kind of context? For example, like food, because like I see are, curries in Japan, and I, I don't feel like it's curry at all. Are,
1: are you talking about Are you talking about Do I want to do different types of work? So. Now that we're talking about this, and this is not going on the podcast, right?
2: Well, I'll, I mean, do I, I'll say it for blackmail, but no.
1: <laughs> no, I'm just making sure. So one of one of my um, dreams is to um, write, I so I really like kebabs, you know, like the food. I really like kebabs. And this has been one of my dreams since I was around maybe 25 or so. Um, I, I had this idea that I would um, write a travelogue called The Kebab Trail, where I would begin in Bosnia, and I would eat the cevapis there. And I would work my way through, like down to Greece, through Turkey, and then through Central Asia, and end up in Xinjiang, in, in China, and eat kebabs along the way. And talk about, I guess, not just the food because you have to talk about the food, but um, but also talking about the local cultures that I meet along the way. That's probably not going to happen, but uh, it's still one of my dreams.
2: Well, when your one skewer, one road project comes out, uh, we'll, we'll talk about that.
1: Uh. <laughs> well, well said.